Welcome. We're glad you're here this morning. If you're visiting with us for the first time, I think you're in for maybe a unique uh, morning. You're going to have a chance to experience something that's very important to us, the order and structure of the church, and you'll see where we're going in that, with that in a moment. But before we go there, I want to tell you welcome. We appreciate you taking uh, your time out this morning to join us. If you're here for friends and family, uh, for this deacon appointment this morning and your friends and family of these deacons to be appointed, we treasure y'all's visit. We're glad that you are here. That's plural for you all, y'all's visit possessive that we make up. We're glad you're here this morning and um, we hope that you have a sweet time uh, joining your, your family member or your friend in this special occasion. Uh, I will say one more thing. If you are here for the first time, I invite you at the end of the morning to meet Clay. It would be Clay back at the table. Okay. Clay's got his hand raised. He'll be back at this little bitty uh, table there uh, after we dismiss this morning to give you just a little packet about sort of explaining and capturing who we are as a church family. So what we believe, what we're about, and uh, if you're looking for a church home, uh, we aren't going to tell you that we're the best church in town because we're not. There's some amazing churches in town, but we do want to try and put in your hand uh, sort of capturing who we are so you can... Uh, consider that. So as you pray through that and work through that. Let me pray and we'll begin with our time in the Word. God, we are thankful. Um, We're thankful for the opportunity, first of all, to sing true things about you back to you. Lord, I'm thankful for what this does to us each week as we are reminded and stirred connecting to what really matters in a sea of things that really seem like they matter a lot. Lord, I'm thankful that each week that we have the opportunity to stop, to tune everything out as much as possible, and to song and to music, express back to you what we know to be true, an ultimate reality for us. God, I'm thankful that you inhabit those praises. I'm thankful that you do something to us in those praises. I'm thankful that not only are our minds reminded of what's true as we sing, but our hearts and our whole beings are caught up in that expression and that you leave us changed as a result of it. God, it's a marvel that in the process of giving you an offering that you bless us. And I'm thankful for that. I don't ever want us to take that for granted week by week. Lord, this morning, in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, God, I'm thankful for your word, I guess, more than anything right now. I'm thankful that we have a static, immovable, strong, anchor-like word that we can go to to make sense of how church should work. I'm thankful, too, this morning that we have a front row seat as we look at three different passages to what Christ has done for us, each of us. I'm thankful this message in this morning isn't just for seven men and their wives, for those that are married. I'm thankful that it's not limited to even our current deacons are those that are being appointed, but it's connecting to every single person in this room if they trust Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what I pray for in these next few minutes, Lord, is a sermon that will speak to and feed us and equip all of us. 
Lord, also this morning, before we move into our time together in the Word, I want to pray for another church, one that's near and dear to us, uh, C3 in Commerce, with David Ferguson and Whitney, um, and their other elders, uh, families, Lord, I just want to lift them up. First of all, pray for David and Whitney and their marriage. Um, Lord, I pray that you are, that their time together as a married couple is flourishing, that they are enjoying one another, that they are walking in your word, that David is being fed by your word week by week as he's preparing to preach and as he's counseling and shepherding. Lord, I pray that the, the premium goods go to the family. And Lord, I pray that in that, that he and Whitney are putting the gospel on display, not only to their children, but to their church family. And that as he preaches and as he serves, that it's out of an overflow of worship that's finding purchase first in the home. God, we are thankful for the relationship that we have with C3 in commerce and thankful for uh, the shared DNA. We're thankful for the families that we've shared that have gone to be part of that plant and the journeys that we've walked together. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to lift them up this morning and pray that you will bless them. Lord, we turn this time over to you. And we look forward to you speaking to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Three passages we're going to this morning in the process of appointing seven men. One of those men is not here this morning. His great-grandmother just found out is, um, is about to pass away, so he's not here with us this morning. But the others, I will share with you in a, in a moment who they are. We're going to appoint to the role or the, uh, the office of deacon. Before we do that, I want to address something. I think we're a melting pot of experiences. Most folks in this room come from a Southern Baptist background. I know not all, but the fact that most of us come from a Southern Baptist background, I think where I'm going in these next few minutes will be fruitful. Some of us carry varying degrees of baggage when we come to the topic of deaconing or the, just the, the mention of the word deacon. They may be great experiences. They may be bad experiences. I grew up in a very traditional Southern Baptist church where my dad was a deacon. I had a front row seat to what it meant to deacon. I often joined him on his deaconing ventures where he's ministering to a family or, or uh, ministering in some way. And I had a great experience witnessing what it meant to be a deacon. But not everybody can say that. Some folks may come from a church background where just the mere mention of the word deacon meant division, strife, um, politics. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear some of the experiences that folks have had. And it's not, I don't think, limited only to Southern Baptist churches. I did some research. The last appointment that, that I preached on, uh, the last time that I had the opportunity to preach when we were appointing deacons, I did some research on the Southern Baptist drift from biblical deaconing. I'll share with you what I found briefly. In the latter half of the 18th century, between 750 and 1800 or so, a new concept of Baptist deacons emerged and continues to exist in many churches today. This is a quote from Charles DeWeese, The Emerging Role of Deacons. He says, this was the view of deacons as church business managers. This view stressed to a seemingly excessive degree the administrative function of deacons intended to distract from other areas of service previously given equally strong attention. Now he's speaking of a period toward the end of the 18th century. Let's move into the 19th century. 
1846, the second president of the Southern Baptist Convention, his name is R.B.C. Howell, I don't know how he had so many initials, but he's got a lot there, referred to the diaconate as a board of directors. And it wasn't, he wasn't, um, it wasn't a criticism. He described them as a board of directors. He put forth the idea that spiritual matters belong to the pastor and physical matters belong to the deacons. In some ways, that presents an almost Gnostic division between the physical and the spiritual, like separating, if you will, Sunday from the rest of the week. Sunday's our spiritual day, and the rest of the week we do physical stuff. In 1955, about 100 years later, Robert Naylor, then the the Southwestern Seminary president, said, There are churches where deacons have appropriated to themselves authority which is contrary to New Testament teaching. It may have gone so far that bossism has developed. What a great word, isn't it? (laughs) Bossism. I want to use that again somewhere, so I'm going to really work it finding a context where it fits. There's a board complex, he said, and a general feeling that deacons are directors of the church. Nothing could be farther from the Baptist genius or the New Testament plan. Anywhere this condition exists, there inevitably are those who say that deacons are not needed. And here's what he said next. The truth is that such deacons as this are not needed in churches. Pretty strong statement. I want to share this with you before we launch off into the Word. And I told you there's three passages. If you want to jot them down, I may not have mentioned them. I just gave you a heads up. There are three passages. The first is in John 13. The second is in Acts 6. And the third is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But before we move into, first of all, John 13, I want to share this with you. We don't suppose for a minute that we've got it all figured out. In the late 18th century, in the middle of the 19th century, in the middle of this century, each of these men speaking on the role of deacon, I trust, loved Jesus and believed that they were squarely planted in the right place. So I don't for a moment think that chronologically that we would be snobs and think that we have it all figured out because we're the latest. I don't for a moment think we've got it figured out. But being a church plant, we had some unique opportunities to start from scratch with what does the Word say. It's one of the things that is dear to me about being a church plant is when we have the notion of, well, maybe we should appoint some deacons, we don't have to go back to the way we've always done it. We can go right to His Word and say, what does God's Word say about deaconing and deacons? So we had the freedom to do that in some ways unclouded by the drift that maybe has taken place for many of our backgrounds. And I know that not all of you have that background. We could just ask and answer the question, what does the Bible say about the deacon? So this morning we're going to look at these three passages as we in these next few minutes appoint Cody Waycasey, Lynn Daniel, Shannon Fulp, Mike Riley, Patrick Fields, Neil Payne, and Kyle Louder. This message will be especially for these men and their wives, for those that are married. We have one of our deacons that are being appointed this morning that is not married. 
And they're also for our current deacons, but I will tell you this, it's for everybody in this room if you're trusting Christ, especially this first place that we're going in John chapter 13. Let's look there. Beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, right there, there's a period in our text. It's not in the original language. They didn't have punctuation. But there is a period right there, and it's a fitting place for a period. And I just want you to suppose for a minute what could have come after that. Revelation tells us that when the Lamb is in the, high, is in, is in the throne room, this throne room vision of the Lamb that John had in Revelation chapter 5, that as the lamb steps up and he grabs the seals and the, the scroll, and, or he opens the, the seals on the scroll because nobody's able to do it, that the 24 elders, now we don't know who they are, if it's just these heavenly beings or if they're representing the apostles or prophets or someone, these 24 elders are casting their crowns as they're on their face worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords, the lamb. Just imagine for a moment what could come after that period. He rose from supper knowing that God had given all things back to him, placed into his hands that he had come from God and was going back to God. Maybe a million angels could have shown up and worshipped. Maybe the angels that came and announced the birth over the shepherd's field could have shown up and had a second act. There have been a lot of things that would have been fitting there that we could imagine. He's about to come to this, this point in his ministry that is a, a pinnacle of his ministry. And this moment is a big night. It's the Lord's Supper night. And you can imagine what could have come after that period. But those things didn't come after that period. Knowing that God had given him all things and placed all things into his hands and that he came from God and he was going back to God. He rose from supper. Let's look at what, he, what it says. It says he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured out water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he'd washed their feet and put, out, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also 
should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Before we talk specifically about what deacons do and who deacons are, I want to deal with why deacons deacon. And this is a great passage to go to to answer the why. If a deacon tries to deacon without understanding the why, he won't go the distance and he won't do it well. So the why is essential. And this passage gives us a beautiful picture of why deacons serve. The high king of heaven, instead of having a host of angels sing for him, instead of turning into some sort of second transfiguration, he laid aside his outer garments. He tied a towel around his waist like a servant, and he stooped and he scooped dirty feet and he washed them. And since a servant's not greater than his master, we too are to wash one another's feet and to serve one another. I told you there was at least this portion of the sermon was going to be for every believer in this room. Before we talk specifically about the what and the who, we can answer the question of why for the deacon and really why for all of us. Why we should serve because our Savior served. Our Savior served. That should be enough. Plato said this at some point or wrote this. I don't know if he said it as well, but he wrote, How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? That's the world's view on servanthood and service. But we see servant, servanthood and service with a different set of eyes through a different lens because we're looking at it through what Christ did. And it's beautifully, he says, blessed are you if you know what to do and you actually do it. It's a little side note for those of you that struggle in life and have miserable, just this perpetual misery in life and you feel so... Uh, discouraged and you feel like you're, you're so unfulfilled in life, let me encourage you, start with serving someone. Start with serving someone. You're experiencing an absence of blessedness because maybe, just maybe, you're a ministry sponge. And I don't want to be ugly about that, but there are people that all they do, and the only thing that ever happens is that they absorb ministry for everybody else. From one crisis to the next, help me, help me, help me. It's all about me, and they just are a sponge, and their lives are miserable, and they're the farthest thing from blessed. There's a beautiful principle here that blessed are you if you know that you should serve and you actually do it. There's a blessedness and a happiness that comes in serving one another. And I'll tell you this right now, future deacons, current deacons, any of you who serve in any capacity, if you struggle with ministry, as Scott was joking a few weeks ago about the, how he used to view ministry as it's hard or it's, it would be easy if it weren't for the people. I mean, we can all laugh about stuff like that because ministry's hard because people are unpredictable and people are inconsistent and people can be, be very hard. But for me, what's harder is not serving. What's more miserable to me is not serving than to deal with the beautiful difficulties of serving and walking in this blessedness. So as far as the why for the deacon, first of all, we can answer with a resounding 
because a servant's not greater than his master. Jesus served, so the deacon serves. Turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to round that why out a little bit more, and we're going to look, look, look a little bit into the what in this passage. Acts chapter 6. A little bit of context here. The church is but an infant at this point. Pentecost hasn't happened that long before now, and the church has been born in Jerusalem. And um, this context for this passage here in chapter 6 is um, a baby church with new problems. Numbers added to them every day, but yet new problems. And let's look at what the answer to their problems was. Beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Now the Hellenists would be the Greek-speaking or Greek-influenced Christians, or maybe even Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. The Hellenists versus the Hebrews, okay? There's a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. There was severe poverty going on in Jerusalem if you were going to be a Christian. In fact, Paul spent a large part of his ministry taking up donations from all these churches that he's planting for the church in Jerusalem. Because if you were to follow Christ in Jerusalem, it would likely mean your job. You would likely be an outcast from society and your entire family. So these people experience severe poverty. So possibly we're talking about a daily distribution of food, water, I don't know. Some, something that they needed that was being distributed to the church family. And apparently the Hellenists feel like their widows were not getting the same draw as the Hebrew widows. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, you could read this, the twelve that summoned the the church in Jerusalem. They got all the church together. This became a church-wide thing. They could have solved this problem in private, which is something we could have done this morning. Instead of preaching and dealing with this publicly and appointing deacons, we could have done this in private. But we want to follow this model and do it publicly and openly where the whole church is involved as they are right here. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, now the we, let me tell you who the we are. The we are the apostles. And in some ways you can consider the apostles the precursors to the elders and pastors. Okay? So just kind of keep that in view as we consider this. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, i.e. church, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Pick out from, nominate seven men of good reputation. It's ironic that we have seven that we're appointing today too. That's kind of cool. Full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. You nominate them, we'll appoint them. You nominate them, we'll vet them, we'll examine them and test them. That's one of the things that will happen as we consider later this morning. And then we'll appoint them. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the church said, that's a great idea, which is basically what this verse says. 
And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And beautifully, what happens after that needs to be considered. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The kingdom was advanced because the answer to this division problem in the church was deacons. Seven guys who, in this case, would at least be about the work of waiting tables. Let's just kind of take this in for a moment. An infant church, the infant church in Jerusalem, is experiencing division over what appears to be favoritism. There's nothing new under the sun. Favoritism has happened for a couple thousand years, or at least the perception, I should say. The perception, whether it's true or not. So the apostles deal with this problem publicly like we're dealing with it today by appointing the answer to their problem Deacons, nominated men, appointed, and they'll lay hands on by the apostles. So why do deacons deacon? We can flesh out the rest of the why. First is because the service is not greater than his master. We're going to do what Jesus did because Jesus did it and he said to do it. And the second reason why deacons deacon? To free up elders to pray and preach and to make sure folks are tended to. Look at verses 2 and 4. We don't have to get real crazy and come up with great reasons because they're right here. The, the apostle said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We're going to appoint some people to tend to the daily distribution in verse 4 so we can devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's the second part of the why in why deacons deacon to free up elders to elder to pray, and to preach. I think a big part of the reason that some of us have a weird experience or a bad experience with this idea of deacon is because maybe we also have a bad experience or a bad view historically of what the pastor's supposed to do. It's not uncommon in our context for people to expect the pastor to be at the hospital anytime anyone is there for any reason, in the flesh, incarnate. And to be ministering to anybody that's having any struggle and any problem to meet every single need in the body and then to stand and deliver on Sunday morning, he would have to be Superman. And unfortunately, there aren't many of those Superman around and those guys don't last. And then they go on to the next church or then they quit ministry altogether. Ideally, we have a healthy view of what deacons do and what elders do. Elders pray and preach. And deacons do everything else to free up the elders to pray and preach. That's a big part of the why. Now, as for what? What do deacons do? Deacons do more than wait tables. It's sort of left ambiguous here. It's left open. I mean, we can see at least they're waiting tables, but there's bound to be more to it than just waiting tables. That I want to, to draw some words that are in this passage that I think deal nicely with what the deacons should be up to is they should be up to, coming right from this passage, the daily distribution of ministry. Now, again, we don't know what this daily distribution was. Maybe it's food, okay? But we can draw those words out because they nicely connect to the concept of deaconing. 
The deacons should deal with the daily distribution of ministry. The deaconship should be about helping meet daily needs in the church family. They are to help sort out the distribution of ministry. They might wait tables. A deacon might wait tables. A deacon might help someone find a seat on a Sunday morning or in a corporate gathering. A deacon might move chairs. They might have moved the chair that you're actually sitting in right now and placed it right where it's sitting so that you could see and hear and enjoy and worship this morning. A deacon might have done that. In fact, a deacon probably did. A deacon might make sure the towel dispensers work. You think that's funny. I'm telling you the truth. Our towel dispensers have been broken like we've had a virus in our church family of, of towel dispensers. And that's not a big deal until you go to wash your hands and you're like, okay, well, that's frustrating. And you come out and you say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. And you shake hands with them and your hands are cold and wet. And you're like, sorry. Just came for the bathroom. Man, towel dispensers matter. And a deacon might have fixed all of our towel dispensers where they actually work. Man, deacons do all sorts of things. They might lead us in worship. One of the first recorded, um, one of the first records that I could find of a deacon serving post-Bible, okay, after the Bible's finished, this would be early church history, is a deacon leading worship. So deacons might lead us in worship. They might run sound. They might meet with, a, with our week-to-week benevolence cases. A lot of them come to our front door. A lot of them call, and there are deacons that meet and take their time with each of these. They might greet guests. You were greeted by a deacon as you came in this morning, at least at one of our doors. They might tend to our budget and our finances. They might change the AC filters And they might touch up paint around this church building. They might check in on our widows or our elderly. They might check in on our missionary families abroad. Deacons might prepare the supper. They actually do prepare the supper. And they count the offering each week. That's what deacons do. They might cut, cut wood with youth on a fundraising event for a global mission trip to Munich. That happened. Youth and their families show up to try and raise some money so to send these kids to the far corners of the world. And guess who showed up to help them? Deacons. That's the kind of stuff deacons do. Man, they might cut your tree up when an ice storm comes and splits it like a banana in your front yard. You might roll up to your, ch- to, to your front yard and see a bunch of deacons in the front yard cutting it with chainsaws and hauling it off. Those are the kind of things that deacons do. They might teach youth, and they might organize youth events. They might keep our website fresh and current. They might do any number of things. And here's the reality, and here's why all of us need to be paying attention. Because as they're doing these things, these things they might do one or the other, they might call you. In fact, that's what they've been charged with doing. Call you so that you can come alongside them to serve with them so that you can participate in the blessing of meeting the need. They're not just the church family workers. They're the church family mobilizers. So they might just call you. Now, 
who are these deacons? Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's our last passage we're going to go to this morning. We're going to spend most of our time here, uh, but we're going to move pretty quickly through it. <clears throat> the what is ambiguous, the why is not at all. The why is very clear, why deacons deacon. The what is left open, depending on the need. But the who is definitely not ambiguous. Who these people are, who these men are, is very clear. We've already considered a couple things from these passages that we've looked at. First of all, who these men are. John 13 tells us that they're men who know they're called to serve and they're actually doing it. There are lots of folks that know they're supposed to do something, but they don't act on it. Deacons are to be men who know they're called to serve and they're actually doing it. You should know that as a practice that we as a church do not appoint men or call men to this work that we think might do a good job. That's a recipe for disaster. You don't call somebody to be a pastor or an elder who we think might do a good job. Hopefully they've been tested. They've been examined. There's some evidence in there that they're actually doing it already. The deacons that are being appointed this morning already know they're called to serve and are already doing it. In some ways, what we're doing is just recognizing what's already being done. We also gathered up from Acts chapter 6 that they're to be men of good repute, that they have a good reputation, a men, that, men that are full of the Spirit and men that are full of wisdom. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13 gives us some specifics. I'll read it all the way through, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, let's unpack these characteristics. First of all, dignified. This word means reverent. Now, if you know our current deacons, that may, be, may not be the first word that comes to mind as a reverent bunch, but really what it means is respectable. And I think we can say that as a <clears throat> truism across the board is that our current deacons and these men that we're appointing this morning are respectable, men that are worthy of respect and honor. A deacon needs to be serious about things that are important. Okay? They need to be serious about the things that are important. <clears throat> A deacon should not be double-tongued. This means that he's not saying one thing in one place, maybe in corporate gatherings or in church settings, but saying something else somewhere else, like maybe at home. That ideally he's the same person, that his mouth is the same thing in both places, that he's the same guy across the board. Should also tell us that he's not a mean-spirited jerk at home and super spiritual in public. If the mouth reflects the heart, then it means that his heart is accurately reflected in all settings. He should speak the truth and be a man who keeps his word, a man who does what he says he'll do. Next, 
The deacons should not be addicted to wine. Each of these things that we're considering so far are observable characteristics. Those are in verse 8. If you want to kind of break it down, it's kind of handy. Verse 8 is observable characteristics. Verse 9 are the spiritual. Okay, so this next observable characteristic is they're not addicted to wine. This biblical limitation that God places on the deacon, let me say this very clearly, is not abstinence. There are deacons in our body that completely abstain from alcohol altogether, which is totally fine. But that's not what's being said here. It says they are not to be addicted to wine. and, And I want to just kind of shoot the elephant. Acknowledging that does not mean that we're the drinking church with an agenda to liberate the lush. That's not what we're about. And I want to also say this, that acknowledging this also doesn't give license to young people to go hit the bottle and tie one on. Any parents that might be concerned about that and any kids that might be thinking I'm saying that. I'm clearly not saying that. Alcohol consumption then was as dangerous as it is now. That's why it's listed separately from temperance in the qualifications for the elder. There's temperance in moderation. And oh, by the way, he better not be a drunkard is what it says for the elders. And down here is it, you want to understand what it means? It means the same thing as he better not be a drunkard addicted to much wine. It was as dangerous then as it is now. If it's used by a deacon or an elder or anyone of age, period, Christian, it should be enjoyed in faith moderately. Okay, the word addicted means occupying oneself with. So someone who occupies themselves with it and is a drunkard is someone that is not considered as a deacon. Next, he should not be greedy for dishonest gain. He's not about making the quick buck. He's not about scheming to try and figure out he can be part of the next money-making scheme. He's characterized instead as one with big hands, open hands, and big heart would be a better way to put it. Open hands and a big heart. If anything, his money-making and his provision for his family is about being generous to those in need in and out of the body. That's why somebody that's all about the next scheme is not qualified to be a deacon. He should serve in order to make others gain. Next, in verse 9, the spiritual requirements. He should hold to the mystery of the faith. The mystery speaks to the deep truths of the faith. I've described this over the years as considering the deacon. This is my favorite characteristic because I think it's something that I would want to be true for any man in our body, myself included, that we hold to the mystery of the faith. And I've described it as if the faith is the engine for the deacon. You see these guys driving these big trucks around where they put in their back rear window Cummins. You know, I got a Cummins diesel under the hood. You're like, man, that's pretty cool. You're really impressed with that engine. That engine means a lot to you. Or the guy that's got like 351 Windsor, you know, 350 Chevy, all these, you know, this he like wants to tattoo it on his arm. That's what I got under the hood. The, the deacon, what's under the deacon's hood is faith, period, because anything else won't go the distance. And anything else just won't do. As the church is driven by a story of a perfect and finished work and a risen Lord, the deacon also is driven by the very same story. 
And this faith, this connection, is faith in the king and savior of this story. That's what has to drive the deacon. We don't look for accomplished men to be deacons. We don't. If Jesus was looking for accomplished men, he wouldn't have picked who he picked. (laughs) I mean, he didn't pick the best and the brightest or most likely to succeed. We don't look for accomplished men. We look for men that are driven with this engine, this faith engine. Because men who aren't driven by faith will be sporadic and undependable. Men who aren't driven by faith will be like Martha who was distracted with much serving. Ironic. She's serving all over the place, but she's distracted because it's not fueled by faith. And certainly not fueled by worship. Men who aren't driven by faith, and this would be true for any of you as you minister to your family. So let's personalize this. This isn't just for the deacon. This is true for moms, too. They're trying to lead their families if, the, if dad's not present, not involved. This is true for any of us. Men who aren't driven by faith will ride the roller coaster of who's following them and who's not. I've ridden it. I'm the best at it. My honey is the shape of the seat. All right, I'm being facetious because I spent a lot of time there, and it is a roller coaster, and I get nauseous on the roller coasters. Ask Christy. I hate them. I turn white get a headache. Man, that's a miserable place to serve. You don't want to be in that position if you're serving your family or you're serving as a deacon or you're serving as a, 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 any ministry position, period. You don't want to ride the roller coaster of who's following you and who's not. You don't want to ride the roller coaster of who's beside you and who's not because people are sheep and people are sporadic and people are unpredictable and people are inconsistent. The deacon that does not have faith as his engine will ride the roller coaster of who's there or who's not. They'll be in and out. They'll be up and down. They'll be tossed around by the frailties of those they serve. That's not the way our deacons can serve consistently. That's not the fuel. That's not the engine. Men driven by faith, though, will be steady. Steady. There's something else fueling that engine and what's fueling that engine engine is worship and awe they serve out of an engine fueled by worship and awe man i want to encourage the men in our body the deacons to be in our body the current deacons everybody in this room really to be driven by faith because then and only then will you serve consistently I i would say the biggest treat that i've experienced in the last 10 years in regards to that was just recently in this passage or this message that we message series that we considered on union with Christ. One of those sermons, I think it was the second one, that connected to a passage that showed us that our faith is not um, in vain and our preaching is not in vain for one singular reason. Because the tomb is empty and Christ is risen and seated and reigning and ruling. That's the only reason. And the deacon has got to be fueled by that reality as dad has got to be fueled by that reality, as elders got to be fueled by that reality, as mom's got to be fueled by that reality, as young man's got to be fueled by that reality. That's the only thing that will fuel you, that faith in an absolute and finished work and a risen Lord, an empty tomb and a risen Lord, period. If you look anywhere else, you will ride the roller coaster and you'll be no good to the body because you'll be distracted with much serving. 
like Martha. Mm, man, I want that for y'all. I want you to remind that, remind me of that when I start to get tossed about and I look nauseous and pale because I'm riding the roller coaster and look like I'm seated in that position. Hold to the mystery of the faith is what these men are to do, and they're to hold to that with a clear conscience. A man who is living in sin unconfessed, unrepentant sin is not obeying God in some areas of his life, and he cannot have a pure conscience. I'm not talking about an absolute absence of sin. I'm not talking about sinlessness. I'm talking about unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Unconfessed un or, or unrepentant sin. You will be clouded by the cares of the world, and you will not be able to hold to faith with a clear conscience. The call here, encouragement, is to be unclouded with um, a life that is wholehearted, which gets to this next one in verse 10, blameless. I pointed out a few weeks ago that faith is one-handed, and a deacon can only hold to one thing. It's one-handed, and you only have room for faith. If you try and hold the cares of the world and all these other things that you can place in there, you got to drop something. Faith is one-handed, and this connects to our next thing, where they should be tested in verse 10, and they should be found blameless. Thankfully, that does not mean sinless, or we would not have any deacons. (laughs) We wouldn't have any elders either. Because that would completely disqualify every single one of us. This word blamelessness, blameless, does not mean sinlessness. It means that he is free of any notorious and persistent fault. He's not withholding in some area of disobedience or sin. There's no fractures, apparently, in his life. For he's all there like Job was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Noah, too, was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. The people of God should be able to say this about every single deacon in our church. He's all there. He's blameless. In that one hand he's holding out there, he's holding faith. And I don't see him juggling other things. And it's not just an initial qualification, but an ongoing examination that's true. For the deacon. Verse 12 tells us that he should be tested at home. He should be the husband of one wife. This means that they are to be a one woman man with eyes for their wives only, not for others they might work with or others they might imagine to be with. How can the deacon serve the bride well if his heart and his eyes are divided between his bride and others, real or virtual or imaginary? He needs to be a one-woman man. We don't believe, after significant study of this passage, that this is meaning that a deacon cannot be a man that's been divorced. Because when Paul talks divorce, he clearly says divorce. It would be a bad place for him to be ambiguous or unclear. Here we believe it means that he should be a one-woman man and he should manage his children and his households well. If the deacon can't shepherd at home, it's hard to imagine that he can be tending to the flock of God's people. But if he's leading his family well, then there's some sense that he'll be able to lead in the church well as well. Now, verse 11 tells us some other things about the deacon that aren't him. It's about his wife. But it's also speaking to, we believe, elders' wives. Verse 11 begins with the word there in my text, but that word there is not there in the original language. 
It just starts with wives. Wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The absence of the word there seems to indicate that these are qualifications for both the wives of the deacons and the elders. So let's consider them. Wives, you didn't know that y'all were going to be on the spot this morning as well. Deacons, wives, current, and uh, those that are about to be appointed, and even our elders' wives can listen to this. First is dignified. This morning we are speaking especially to Gwen Way Casey, Cam Daniel, Jacqueline Fulp, Michelle Riley, Lauren Payne, Sandy Louder, and then again, of course, our other deacon wives and elder wives. This, these wives are to be dignified first. Reverent. It means the same thing we considered with the husbands. Reverable or respectable, worthy of respect or honor. She needs to be serious about things that are important as well. She's to be a woman of upright character and integrity. It means that she's not a fake. It means that she's genuine, teachable, humble, and sincere. These wives are to be worthy of respect, honor, admiration, love, and affection of God's people. A wife whose life, manner, conduct, thoughts, and attitude are not honorable or worthy of respect and admiration does not meet this qualification, and she leaves her husband unqualified. Okay, she's not the deacon, but she can leave her husband unqualified to serve as a deacon or an elder. Secondly, these wives are not to be slanderers. The word in the original Greek there for slanderer is the word diabolos. If you know your Spanish, at least, I think it's Spanish, you know that means Satan. That's what that's speaking to. It's translated 35 times in the New Testament as Satan and three times referring to what a person might be doing as in slandering. And here's the point there. It's quite Satan-like to slander and run people down. And notice here he's speaking to wives. And wives, I'm not picking on any ladies or any wives, but realize there may be a potential for that to happen, especially so among ladies. I'm not being ugly in saying that. And I'm not the guy that first came up with that. I'm not. John Calvin said this some 500 years ago. Talkativeness is a disease among women. <laughs> That's why I had him quote it, you know, quoting. And old age usually makes it worse. In addition to this, women are never satisfied with their talking till they have become prattlers and scandal mongers attacking everybody's reputation. Those are a couple of good words, too. We'll add to bossism. The result is that old women, by their slanderous garrulity, as by a lighted torch, often set many homes on fire. Now, again, I'm not picking on ladies. I'm just saying there, there is a potential there for ladies to burn down some homes. The, the wives of deacons and wives of elders are privy to information that can burn homes down. It's true. It's true. You can ruin some folks. The wife of a deacon and an elder should help their husbands preserve, encourage, and build up God's people, not burn their houses down or the house of God by slandering them. Those of y'all that are on the receiving end of what those wives could do, you'd want that of those wives, wouldn't you? Man, we need that, and we have that, thankfully. We have a remarkable bunch of men and wives that are serving in this body right now. Sober-minded is the next. Sober-minded means vigilant. We're speak, still speaking of the wives. 
The wives should be vigilant, watching their tongues and their hearts and helping the elder and deacon guard his. That's right, men. Your wife is supposed to help you, help hold you accountable in that. This woman is serious about guarding their hearts and is teachable and searchable, realizing what's at stake if Satan creeps in. She must keep a close watch over her heart, lest there arise any root of bitterness, unbelief, sinful practices of life, speech, or thought, neglecting the things of God or the people of God. And lastly, she's to be faithful in all things. Wow. Faithful in all things. That means she's supposed to be trustworthy, dependable, and reliable. The elder or deacon should be able to trust her in everything. Man, it's a tall order, a tall list for the men and for the women. And we have to be really honest. These are some significant, significantly challenging qualifications that have to be bathed in grace because no woman meets these qualifications perfectly and no man meets these qualifications perfectly. Only Jesus would. So they have to be bathed in grace, but they also have to be considered to be present at least in some degree and growing. Now, there's some beautiful results for the church family when these things are in place, when the deacons are qualified and their wives are qualified and moving well. And we can include that the overseers or elders are qualified and they're moving as they should. And let's look, continuing in verse 13, it says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the results for the man that deacons well. Great and strong faith as you have a front row seat to what God is doing. The fact that this is in here tells me that even at that point in time, that some deacons will serve better and more faithfully than others. But let me promise you this, deacons-to-be and current deacons, let me remind you of this. People enjoy seeing Christ minister to the body through you. It ministers to them to see God use you. And as Christ is enjoyed through your feeble and frail hands of service, they will experience, these deacons, as you serve, you will experience a mighty confidence in God as true. There are deacons in this room that can attest to that firsthand. A front row seat to God doing something wonderful. Now, the results for the body. Those are the results for the man. Now, let's look at the results for the body in verses 14 and 15. Remember, this is right after the passage dealing with the qualifications for elders, right after the passage dealing with the qualifications for deacons. Here in verse 14, it says, I hope to come to you soon, Paul's writing to Timothy, but I'm writing these things. The only thing he's talked about up to this point is prayer, okay, in chapter, chapters 1 and 2. And he's talked about elders, qualifications for elders, and deacons. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That may not, kind of thought, may not be very fashionable in today's contemporary context, but it was important then and it should be important to us now because the word is timeless. Whatever our context might be, whatever contemporary thought may be about order and behavior in the local church. 
Man, it's reason enough to deal with it right here. Why should these things be in place? So they show us how we ought to behave in the household of God. And here's why. Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Here's what happens when elders elder well and when deacons deacon well and when the body is connected to all that and understanding to that, understanding all that and, and, um, in, and receiving those ministries that are taking place. And are following that sort of leadership that God has put in place. We know how to behave in the household of God. And here's the beauty. The truth is buttressed and pillared. I don't know if pillar is a word. Pillared is a word, but we're going to make it one. It, the, the truth is, is, is buttressed when the household of faith is ordered according to his design. Why do we do this on a given Sunday morning? Why do we spend an entire morning considering deacons and what they're supposed to do? Why do we do this when we appoint elders as well? Because the truth is at stake. And how we present the truth, not only to each other, but also to our community. There is a potential to have a burden for the lost of Greenville. And I've seen this so many times. A burden for the lost and unbelieving of of Greenville. And yet have no affection and love for the local church. Like I don't know what you're going to invite them into. You want them to come to Jesus but not to Jesus' people. Because they're messy and they're troublesome and they're inconsistent and they're unpredictable. And they make you ride roller coasters. So don't go there. Love Jesus. Man, you need to understand the pillar and buttress of the truth is the church. And that's Christ's people. If we are going to have a burden for the lost of Greenville and we're going to dream about how they are to be reached, then the household of God should be in order. The long arm of evangelism can be an ordered household. This says these people are not divided. Realize the answer to the division in the infant church in Acts was deacons. What a crazy answer. The answer was deacons. So somebody says, man, Cross Point Fellowship, you guys don't, I don't really see you guys have a bunch of division and a bunch of strife that y'all have to work through all the time. How do you do that? I say, well, deacons. And they go, huh? Yeah, deacons. They were the answer in Acts 6 and they're the answer now. Order in the church is the long arm of evangelism. Do you think it's a ministry to someone to say, man, you need to come to faith in Christ. You need to ask him to deal with your sins so you can spend eternity with him. You can be reconciled with your creator, but you can't tell him you should come to my church because your church is a mess. Do all these things, but don't come to my church because it's a mess. And think about this. You are hopefully, as you share Christ with people in the workplace, our family members, or friends, or neighbors... You're inviting them into an ordered household that's ordered according to his plan and his design, behaving, ordered, out loud, enjoying Christ. Man, that's why we spend a morning on this. And that's why we'll spend a morning on it again the next time we appoint some deacons. Now, I want to ask our deacons and these deacon wives to come up. Uh, Cody, Gwen, Lynn, and Cam, y'all can just stand right across the front up here. And wives, I'd ask you if you would to stand in front of your husband. And our, our elders are going to come up and pray, and lay hands on you and pray for you here in a moment. Cody Way Casey, Lynn Daniel, 
Shannon Fulp, Mike Riley, and Michelle, I should say Jacqueline also, Jacqueline Fulp, Patrick Fields, Neil and Lauren Payne, and Kyle and Sandy Louder are not here this morning, so we will lay hands on them and pray for Kyle next week. And I want to just read this passage. Just, just let this kind of hit you as I read this passage. I'm not somehow creating, yeah, y'all scoot, I want y'all like equidistant. This is your first assignment as deacons is you get like <laughs> equidistant with wives standing in front of their husbands where men are close shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, <laughs> nice, nice work, engineer. Yeah, he works at L3. Anybody guess that? Yeah. All right, good. Okay, y'all just stand there for a minute. Let me read this passage, and then Brad's going to come up and pray. Come on, Brad and Scott, and we'll be ready to pray and lay hands on you. Let me read this passage, though. This is cool. Just let this hit you. I'm not creating new scripture here. Okay, all I'm doing is connecting what we're doing to the scripture. Listen to this. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. That's a great idea. And they chose Cody Waycasey, Lynn Daniel, Shannon Fulp, Mike Riley, Patrick Fields, Neil Payne, and Kyle Lauder. These they set before the apostles, or the elders in this case, and the elders prayed and laid their hands on them. Let's do that and let's pray. Father, we receive these men with very grateful hearts, and we receive these men and their families as a good gift from you to this church. We are so humbled that you would provide faithful, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, faithful, blameless men to us time and again. And you keep doing that, and you keep raising them up right in front of us. And they bring such relief to this church. And we're so grateful that that is your design. But not just that it's your design, but that it's happening right here in front of us in these men and our current deacons as well. I pray for these seven that you would guard them, protect them, keep them mindful that the faith is an ongoing thing and that they not quit. And when they're weary, they would lean on sensible men around them. And when they're tired, they would lean on this church and let us help them at times so that they would go the distance and persevere in their own faith and continue to be what this church needs. We are just so grateful for these men and their families. And uh, we worship you in response to it. And um, we wanted to, again, just lift them up to you so that when they become privy to things and decisions and problems and needs throughout the church that it would fuel them in their faith and not discourage them and knowing that they are going to have to take extra care of their own heart as well as their wives because of what they're going to see and know differently now in this office. And uh, we are careful, but we are excited. And I pray that that's how these men will move carefully, but, uh, aggressively and intentionally to bring relief to this church. We are so grateful that you have given them to us as a good gift. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Y'all stay where you are just for a minute.
ancient um, earthen vessels that have been unearthed in the Holy Land. Uh, they look new and shiny, but really they, these are pretty special. We had them imported from foreign lands. They have each of your names on them, not everybody's, but your name, and diakonos in Greek, which was a nice touch, I thought, and then the date. And uh, we want to see these proudly displayed in your homes. Okay, if I go to a deacon's house and I don't see it displayed and I see a dog drinking water out of it or something, man, it's like church discipline is on. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be terrible. So, and I'll pass these to the wives and then I'll let the wives sit. Yes, they're all, yes. They're coordinated with each home and their decor and that just that's how it's worked out. Michelle? Yeah. So if you're not happy, you can't trade. It's... Patrick, you can pass that to your family here in a minute. Lynn. And if you don't like it, then you, you can repaint it, I guess, maybe. <laughs> Neil and Lauren. Got to be careful not to drop one. I was so nervous carrying them over here. And this last one right here is for Kyle Louder. For anybody that knows Kyle and Sandy, you're like, that's perfect. <laughs> that's not a criti- criticism. They just Everybody saw that bass and go, oh, that's, that's Kyle and Sandy's. Cody Way Casey. There you are. There you go. Gwen. All right, ladies, y'all can be seated. And men, I would like for y'all, I think it's a fitting thing for you today to distribute our elements. I think that you've already been instructed on which table you're going to. I think there'll be a couple other deacons joining you, but let's together enjoy our supper as y'all distribute those elements.